0: Hi, it's Amber here to share a very special podcast episode. On Friday, Supreme Court justice and feminist hero Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. RBG was an icon on the bench and a skilled advocate who made her mark on the law even before she joined the high court. Per sister podcast, The Term, took a look back at her legacy, talking with one of her former law clerks and an attorney who worked alongside Ginsburg at the ACLU. We'd like to share that episode. But first, a quick programming note. President Trump has said that he'll announce his pick for RBG's replacement on Saturday. We'll have an episode of Pro Se Then to outline what you need to know about the nominee. Now, on to the show.
1: Sex classifications do stigmatize when, as in Gossard against Cleary, 335 U.S., they exclude women from an occupation thought more appropriate to men. The sex criterion stigmatizes when it is used to limit hours of work for women only. Hours regulations of the kind involved in Muller against Oregon, though perhaps reasonable under turn-of-the-century conditions, today protect women from competing for extra remuneration, higher-paying jobs, promotions. The sex criterion stigmatizes when, as in Hoyt against Florida, 368 U.S., it assumes that all women are preoccupied with home and children and therefore should be spared the basic civic responsibility of serving on a jury. These distinctions have a common effect. They help keep woman in her place, a place inferior to that occupied by men in our society.
2: Welcome to a special Remembrance episode of The Term. I'm Jimmy Hoover, I cover the Supreme Court for Law 360. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died Friday of complications from cancer. Uh, At 87 years old, she was the oldest sitting member of the court and had served on the court the longest. She was appointed by President Clinton in 1993, more than 27 years ago, and became only the second female justice in U.S. history. On the bench, she built a legacy defending women's equality in the law that she began as a law professor and attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, Joining me to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life and legacy in the law is co-host of the term podcast, Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie?
3: Hey, Jimmy. I'm... Fairly well, but I think, uh, as most people still a little bit, um, taken aback by the news, you know, that I, I think we all in some ways expect it at some point, you know, the justice could not live forever and she had so many health problems the last few years, um, but it was such a, a loss for the legal community and really for the world, I I, I think. I, I've, I've been struck by the outpouring of tributes that have just really been coming from all corners uh, of the world. You know, we've spoken, I, I think, before on the podcast, Jimmy, about how she was such a pop icon in so, <laughs> yeah. in so many ways. Uh, and, and that's just really been true over the last few days to see people remembering her, not just as, as a supreme court justice but as you know uh, a role model for women for working mothers for for everyone who's you know wanted to go and break a glass ceiling uh you know it's been pretty astounding uh jimmy i know you were in dc the night it happened um and went to the supreme court steps that night can you kind of share a little bit about what you saw there
2: Sure, yeah. After, you know, obviously helping out with the with our coverage, I, I went over to the Supreme Court and managed to get there around midnight, and there were still hundreds of people, you know, paying their respects to Justice Ginsburg. There had probably been thousands earlier in the night, you know, laying flowers, uh, putting up posters, candles, all this RBG memorabilia, if you will, and it was just, yeah, exactly, really clear what she meant to not only just the legal community, but the broader public. I mean, you know, she's achieved a level fame in recent years that's pretty much unheard of for a sitting Supreme Court justice. And it, it really does go to show, you know, how she had kind of risen above the very cloistered institution of the U.S. Supreme Court and become such a figure in the eyes of the, you know, American public.
3: I think so much of that is is really tied to how she broke so many barriers on her, her way up uh, the legal ladder from, you know, being, I think, one of nine women out of uh, you know, a class of law students um, to being the second female Supreme Court justice and and also just all her work that she did on gender equality, both as an advocate, as an attorney, and then later on as a justice.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. She She really is one of the few uh, Supreme Court justices that carved out a legacy in American law long before she ever, you know, donned a robe. Uh, you know, as we I mentioned up top, she was a pioneering litigator as a law professor and ACLU attorney, um, bringing a number of landmark cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and arguing them and striking down laws that discriminate uh, on the basis of sex. And she really did build on that uh, legacy as a justice herself. I think her big, you know, uh, majority decision in nineteen ninety six, in the case of United States versus Virginia, was a, a clear example of that when she, you know, wrote the opinion striking down Virginia Military Institute's longstanding male only uh, policy. But you know, Justice Ginsburg didn't really earn that moniker of the notorious RBG just for her majority decisions. A lot of it it came from her pretty stinging dissents over the years as the court, you know, obviously grew more conservative.
3: Yeah, you can't quite see it very well in this uh, Zoom that we have going on, but I'm actually wearing one of her, uh, one of those descent pins of her descent collars that have become so popular just uh, in her honor as we're talking about her for this episode. Uh, but Jackie Bell, who was uh, really reporting uh, the the breaking news uh, alongside you on Friday, wrote this uh, pretty amazing story about her descents. And um, it was really interesting to to. To read and to learn that, you know, in the first few years on the bench, she, she rarely read aloud a dissent. It, it, it really wasn't her style. Um, but by the end of the 2012 term, I think she'd read like 10 dissents from the bench or something like that.
2: Yeah, reading the bench as that symbol for the justices that expresses like your profound disagreement with the majority's decision, I think probably famous of those dissents came in 2007 when Justice Ginsburg read aloud a dissent from the bench, basically calling on Congress uh, to reverse what the court had done in in a paid discrimination ruling. The case was Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. And you know sure enough congress responded and listened to justice Ginsburg in the lily Ledbetter pa- fair pay act it actually became the first piece of legislation signed into law by president obama and of course justice Ginsburg had to have that prominently displayed yeah, in her chambers
3: <laughs> i think it really just one example of many of of how she was such a driving force on the bench even in dissent even in you know as part of the minority um and I know you know it, it, it's almost impossible to talk about her right now without talking about just the political battles that are gearing up in the wings uh, as we speak uh, as to what might happen with the next nominee. Um, and I know that there's been some criticism and, and Democratic criticism uh, for her not stepping down uh, under the Obama administration. And I'm sure those are points that we will be talking about more in upcoming episodes, especially as we kind of find out who will be the nominee um, and, and how might those hearings and, and that process play out. Um, but really for, for this episode, um, you know, we're, we're going to focus a lot on just her legacy um, and on who she was as an advocate, as an attorney, and as a justice. So we're going to hear from two people who knew her and worked alongside her at different times in her career. Up first, we're speaking with Rachel Weiner apter who clerked for Justice Ginsburg in the October 2011 term and is now director of the New Jersey Division on Civil Rights. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I guess our condolences first and foremost. I I feel like, you know, obviously the the passing of Justice Ginsburg has hit the legal community as a whole, but it has to hit a little bit different for, for someone who's clerked with her before.
0: Yes, it has been heartbreaking. I actually um, was observing Rosh Hashanah, so I found out that the justice had died at an outdoor service at a synagogue that I go to because the news had been announced after the holiday had started on Friday night, so I found out on Saturday morning. Um, And it was pretty horrific. And my thoughts are really just with the justice's family, her entire law clerk family, And really, the entire country mourning this terrible loss.
3: We'd really like to, you know, just get a a sense of of some of your recollections or fond memories of your time spent with the justice as a clerk. What what stands out to you um, during that time? So the justice
0: was an incredible boss and mentor and friend. Um, While I was clerking, the justice. Treated all of the law, all of her law clerks like members of her family. She celebrated our birthdays um, with elaborate get-togethers, with champagne and baked goods. Um, she met our families. So she met my mother and my two daughters at the time. Um, And she really listened to everything that we had to say. So I went back and visited the justice many times after I finished my clerkship in 2012. And she would sometimes spend an hour sitting with me and talking about whether I had career questions or I was looking for advice, um, or she was talking about some of the things that she was working on or some of the places that she was traveling. Um, It was really incredible that she was willing to devote that kind of time to serving as really a lifelong mentor to her former clerks and friend.
2: Yeah, it is pretty incredible when you think about just how long she served on the bench. And obviously, you know, to be able to have that relationship with the various classes of clerks to come in uh, over the years that she can maintain that personal touch. I wonder what she was like the the other Justice Ginsburg, the one that, you know, shows up to the court and 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 puts on the robe and does the job. What what did you learn kind of working in chambers with her about her uh, you know, just approach to the job really and and how she, you know, t- took it seriously.
0: The Justice thought that she had the best job in the world and she did take it incredibly seriously. Um, To the justice, every single word in one of her written opinions mattered. She wanted every single word to get the correct point across in the most succinct way possible, in the way that would be most easily understandable to people who are reading it. The justice also took very seriously the idea that the law is not some sort of abstract concept that is Enjoyable to debate. Instead, the law is a real force in people's everyday lives. And the justice remembered and thought about in every single case who were the real people who were going to be impacted by this decision and how were they going to be impacted.
2: Yeah, just to follow up on that, um, the, it, Justice Ginsburg's style, I think people think of it as being very direct, into the point, you know, where maybe some of the other justices have very kind of Uh, flared writing and, uh, you know, kind of at times bombastic rhetorical devices. She was always straight to the point. I I wonder if that's because she's constantly thinking of, you know, ways in which that the the, the actual impact of the decisions that you're thinking about. Do you think that was what was kind of influencing that style for her is constantly thinking about, you know, the people who are going to be affected by these decisions and so forth?
0: I think it was maybe three different things. One, that she was always thinking about the people who would be impacted by uh, the decisions. Um, Two, that it was very serious to her and it was important to her that she got every word, that every word was precise and that she turned the entire opinion into an accurate reflection of reasoning of the court because she did take her job so incredibly seriously. Um, But then I think it was also the justice didn't think that bombastic language was helpful in life. The justice would regularly tell a story of how I believe it was on the day she got married, her mother-in-law offered her a piece of advice. And it was that sometimes it is helpful to be a little bit deaf. (laughs) And as the justice explained it, that was not only a helpful piece of advice in marriage, um, which I've been able to take to heart as well, but also in life that there are times that someone will say something that is thoughtless or unkind and responding in anger is just not productive. That is firmly what the justice believed. She did not believe that responding in bombastic terms was an effective way to either convince someone to change their minds or even to convey how wrong she thought the decision was.
2: And that's what's so interesting is that even though she didn't, you know, use Justice Scalia's uh, rhetorical attacks, calling things pure applesauce or or whatever that he would say. She did earn that reputation as you know one of the, the, the big dissenters on the court, known for her kind of stinging dissents. But I'm wondering if you can kind of share maybe the other side of Justice Ginsburg that we're hearing about lately, like maybe the lighter side of in chambers. I mean, she did have that sense of humor, right? Is there anything that you can share with us, maybe memories that you had about your year clerking at the court? Uh,
0: there were so many incredible memories from our year clerking, um, in the court. We, the justice took all of us to an opera, um, at the Kennedy Center, which was incredible. None of us had had any prior appreciation for or experience with opera. Um, but the justice was an incredible teacher, um, explaining to us everything before it happened. Um, and, that was really a wonderful experience that we all were able to have. Um, there were also many times in chambers where we were, as I said, able to talk to her about um, things that were going on in our lives, things that were going on in her life. And that was such a huge part of the conversations that I was able to have with the Justice um, when I returned and visited for years and years. Um, and one thing I'll also always remember about the justice in Chambers is how, um, how amazingly incredible her eating habits were. Um, Mm her, um, I clerked for the justice a year after her husband, Marty, had died. And it was really tragic and incredibly sad still when I was there. Um, And Marty had been well known for being the chef, not only in um, the justice's family, but also um, he prepared food for um, everyone at the Supreme Court. He had certain dishes that were... um, Famous among um, court personnel and the other justices and their spouses, um, a cookbook of his recipes actually was issued while I was clerking. And that was a really beautiful tribute from the other spouses um, in honor of Marty. Uh, but the justice, um, so after Marty had died, the justice was not cooking for herself. And so her daughter, Jane, would cook and bring food and freeze it for the justice. Um, But the justice would often survive during the day by eating cookies from the cafeteria, (laughs) fruit and cottage cheese. Um, I didn't ever see her eat a substantial meal like chicken or meat or something that someone else might define more traditionally as a meal.
2: Well, uh, cookies and cottage cheese, you'll have to remember that. (laughs) The key to a successful judicial career.
3: Not together.
2: (laughs) Okay. Good to know.
3: You mentioned a few times um, referencing her kind of as a teacher and a mentor. How did she influence you in, in your own career?
0: So the justice influenced me in a lot of ways. Um, One was the justice really taught me the importance of being strategic and thinking before I acted. Um, The justice had this ability. She always thought before she spoke. And so nothing that she said was ever accidental. Um, She could dictate an entire sometimes two-page court order by just thinking in her head of what she wanted the order to say and then stating it without ever having to go back and erase anything, without ever having to see it on paper. She could literally verbally dictate what she wanted it to say. Um, But that also, the justice also was incredibly strategic in her career Before becoming a Supreme Court justice, the justice was able to convince nine male Supreme Court justices that equal citizenship for women was guaranteed by the United States Constitution. And she was able to do that by being incredibly strategic about what types of cases she brought, what type of arguments she made. It was a very step-by-step, careful plan to try to bring nine male justices to that conclusion. And I think for me in my life, that has taught me to really be thoughtful and careful about what um, what I'm choosing to do with my time. And also it has taught me, um, as a parent, one of the things that I talked to the justice a lot about when I went back to visit her in Chambers because she had previously met my children and um, that had been an incredible experience, was just what it was like to try to be juggling working and being a parent at the same time. And I think Justice Ginsburg's um, care in her speaking, in her legal strategy, um, the thought that Justice Ginsburg gave to everything that she did, really inspired me to think seriously about what am I looking for in my career? Is this something that is worth missing bedtime with my children? Is this something that is worth not being able to help my children with homework? If not, I should um, think strategically and say no rather than always saying yes.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for coming on the show today and kind of sharing your experiences with Justice Ginsburg. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be right back.
4: It was a judgment of Congress that forty years has not been sufficient sufficient amount of time to eliminate the vestiges of discrimination. That judgment of the body empowered to enforce the Civil War amendments by appropriate legislation, should garner this Court's unstinting approbation. The great man who led the march from Selma to Montgomery, and there called for the passage of the Voting Rights Act, foresaw progress, even in Alabama. The arc of the moral universe is long, he said, but it bends toward justice if, there is a steadfast commitment to see the task through to completion. That commitment has been deserved by today's decision.
2: I'm so glad uh, Rachel mentioned the late Marty Ginsburg's, you know, cooking chops. They're they're very famous, obviously, in the legal world. I think Natalie, you had been wanting to make his ratatouille uh, uh, recipe.
3: Yes, uh, it actually recently came out in a, a cookbook, and uh, I've had my eye on it. I'm I'm actually been making my grocery list for the weekend, and I'm hoping to to give it a try this weekend. Let's see if I'll. I'll have uh, some time for that. Although I have to say, hearing that Justice Ginsburg uh, was partial to cookies throughout her like daily uh, eating habits uh, also makes me a little bit more partial to the Justice because I've <laughs> there been <we> known <laughs> to, to snack on cookies too.
2: Well, next up we have on another person who knew the Justice well. That is Brenda Feigen. Uh, she co-directed the ACLU's Women's Rights Project with Justice Ginsburg back in the early 70s. Uh, welcome to the show, Brenda. Thanks for coming on.
5: Thank you very much. I'm a fan of your work. Oh,
2: thank you. So before we get started, why, why don't you kind of break down for us kind of the genesis of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, which I understand, uh, you know, started with the litigation that you were doing in the early 70s, attacking some of these yeah. laws.
5: Yes, the ACLU Women's Rights Project came about because the Supreme Court decided a case called Reed v. Reed, which then Professor Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the brief for. And that involved an, a, a woman who wanted to be able to administer the estate of her deceased son, but men were were preferred in the state of Idaho. And the brief basically said that's that has nothing to do with anything. It's another sex role stereotype. Um, we won in the Supreme Court. That prompted the ACLU to start what's called the women, what was called the Women's Rights Project of the ACLU. And I got a phone call from them asking me if I would be willing to direct it with. As I said, then Professor Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was already on board.
2: So, what was it like in those early days, and how did you come up with the legal strategy that you ultimately, uh, you know, applied in, in in those early days?
5: It was absolutely um, groundbreaking in the sense that nobody had really been taking cases of sex discrimination for hundred for a hundred years. Women had been denied equal rights in the courts until the Reed case, and when. We started the first case that came our way was something called Sharon. It was it was Frontiero against R- Richardson. Um, Sharon Frontiero was an Air Force lieutenant who wanted to get medical and housing benefits for her husband, the way just the way that military men could get for their wives, and um, we knew that was a tremendous injustice, and that's when we started the strategy of what what. Ruth called, I will call her now Ruth, the, the double edged sword of cases that would help men and women at the same time. And that case was an extremely important, probably the most important be- beginning step of women's rights in the law, really.
3: You were in the courtroom uh, for Justice Ginsburg's first oral argument at the Supreme Court, which was that Air Force case, correct? Uh, That's could right. you share? Could you share with us the memory and, and what was that was like watching her argue?
5: It started with our deciding to write an amicus brief for the Supreme Court. I hate the word amicus by the way because <laughs> All right, but anyway, so we wrote this brief and I have never had an experience like that she was quoting from I mean seriously she quote I have some notes here Blackstone who said there will be one the man and the woman and the one is a husband. Uh, Ibsen who said women cannot be um, herself um, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville said American women um, are on a distinct pathway to take part in polit- and, and never conduct a business. They may never conduct a business. So I, This is all these are references that she brought into this brief that I helped her with. And every time I would write, she would edit and it would be a process that was just an amazing one. We ended up having such a brilliant brief that the lawyer for Sharon Frontier asked us if we would write a joint reply brief, which we did. On the heels of that, I called the lawyer in Alabama, where he was, and I said, you know what, I want Justice Ginsburg and Professor Ginsburg to have time to argue the case with you. And I managed to get her 12 minutes out of his half hour. Um, So off we went when the time came to the Supreme Court. I loaded down with these huge case books on an airplane from New York to Washington um, she was so nervous. I couldn't tell at the time that she was, but she has said she was so nervous she was afraid she might throw up and she didn't eat any lunch. It was an afternoon hearing. And um, just going into that courtroom with the marble and the busts of old men, and I mean, it was just overwhelming. I sat there with my huge case books in front of me at the council table. She got up to speak, and it was just, it just flowed with not a pause. She didn't need a single one of my citations. They, the court, the justices did not ask a single question, which, as you know, is very unusual, and uh, didn't make a face, didn't do. I wasn't sure what they were doing—whether they were listening, or bored, or completely enchanted. It turned out to be the latter. And and after that argument, I leaned over to her and I said, "You're going to be the next Democratic appointee to the court," and I was right. I mean, in 1993, Bill Clinton appointed her. Um, it was. Marty came up to her after the after the uh, hearing and gave her a kiss, and then said. Um, you know, was, I have to go to a meeting, so you'll have to take the shuttle by yourself. And I said, I'll get her back because it wasn't clear she would have been able to do that. Was, she was just completely on another planet with that, with that argument. I've never been through anything like that. And it, it was the beginning of our arguing that sex discrimination has to be scrutinized as closely and harshly as race discrimination. We didn't quite get it in that case, but
2: and and it's also really interesting, the, just the the kind of optics of these cases where you know oftentimes y- you were targeting discrimination, sex discrimination against men, and it was obviously a um, you know there were only there were only male justices at the time. What was that dynamic like? I understand that was kind of a conscious decision on on the women's rights project.
5: It was not a kind of it was truly a, a conscious decision. It was it really began with Stephen Weisenfeld's case. He was a a man whose wife had given birth, um, healthy pregnancy. Suddenly, she died in childbirth. The son Jason was born, and Stephen decided that he wanted to spend his time taking care of his baby son. Um, he applied for social security benefits, which is auto, which are automatically given to um, mothers when fathers die, and he was refused. And that case, she just loved. Took it. I by this time, I'm, as as the case came around for argument, I had left the, the ACLU because I was having my own baby and I needed to earn a tiny bit of income more than I was getting at that institution. And she um, got a nine zero um, a unanimous decision from the court that that was unconstitutional. And that's the double edged sword that her strategy of taking cases that show how a woman's work when she dies is not as valued as a man's work when he dies. And that began a string of cases on behalf of men that were the double-edged sword, as well as women.
3: As you've said, it was such a slow, methodical strategy. Um, You know, as as you were keeping in touch with her, did you get a sense of whether she was satisfied with the results? Um, And just, you know, how her fight for equality evolved as her career moved forward and as, as you both stayed in touch?
5: Well, I don't think I have to tell you that not only did it the strategy come to a culmination, but Justice Ginsburg became Justice Ginsburg, and on the Supreme Court, three years after she was appointed and took her seat, she issued a seven-to-one majority opinion in the Virginia Military Institute case, ruling that girls had to be admitted as well as boys to this military institute in Virginia. Uh, The school had tried to have a sort of an inferior dual track for women to be able to get some kind of education, and that wasn't good enough, And in that case, she wrote for the majority of the Supreme Court that there has to be an exceedingly persuasive justification for any distinction based on sex to remain on the books. That, frankly, was the standard that we were going for and is the standard that would be applied in Equal Rights Amendment matters as well. So it's beyond satisfactory the way it's worked.
2: And and that's often the case I've seen. Justice Ginsburg's seen her speak over the years, and that would often be the case that she would mention and talk about how, how significant it was to her personally that she was able to you know, write the decision in that case. Um, so were you able to keep in touch with the justice over the years after you know, being in the trenches back in the early 70s?
5: I was able to. I was, I was very honored to be able to be her guest on a number of occasions when, when the court was in session. Uh, on one of the later times that I went there, I, this was right after the marriage cases decision, I was in her chambers when she said to me, you know, if Anthony Kennedy hadn't included an equal protection argument or, or part of his opinion in the marriage cases, I would have had to have written a concurring opinion. She didn't like there being a lot of different opinions in different cases. And so when he wrote those those words about privacy and liberty and all the other Ways of describing what same-sex couples are entitled to, it was very, very important to her that equal protection be applied so that same-sex couples would get the same privileges and rights as straight couples. Um, so that she was very pleased with that. She sent me a bunch of letters and pictures and everything else. I mean, I just literally she sent me a letter saying that I've now performed four same-sex marriage um, ceremonies and closes a script from the first. She gave me a script from the marriage. Um, well, wedding vows or whatever you want to call it, that she performed with a brass quintet from the National Symphony for this gay couple. I mean, she's very proud. Anything that has to do with justice and equality and equal power, she, that was her thing, not just on sex and sexual orientation, but, you know, I mean, I could go on about the voting rights case. There's just a lot,
3: a whole lot. In your mind, personally, what do you think is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy? You know, is there a particular fond memory or moment that you look back on that, for you, encapsulates what her legacy will be?
5: Well, you know, when we were starting out, Ruth was as adamant as I was about being in an equal marriage and not adhering to sex role stereotypes. It's famous that Marty did the cooking and she did the thinking, and and um, she, but she melded that. Together with her judicial philosophy of equal protection, equal rights, um, liberty, justice, so that when the DACA case came down, when um, when the uh, uh, voting rights came, case came up, you're seeing in the voting rights case her violently strong dissent to the majority of the of the court, saying, you know, we um, uh, we don't care, we can throw the umbrella out in the rainstorm because everybody's got their rights to vote. We all know that that hasn't really been. Effectual, and that we are still in need of some establishing of that. So she stood for, she stands for in her personal life, in her political life, in her legal and constitutional roles um, of all of those principles coming together. And on top of it all, she was a really nice person with a sense of humor. These things don't usually come together in one human being.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much, Brenda, for coming on the show today and and sharing your memories and your experiences uh, on such pioneering work. Uh, We really appreciate it.
5: I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me.
3: I think that does it for us today. We want to shout out all of the Law 360 reporters who have been working nonstop since the weekend and contributing to the special Justice Ginsburg coverage. Jackie Bell, Abra Coe, Michelle Gorman, Cara Bayless, please go to Law360.com to check out all the stories that have come out um, from them and from some of our other reporters. I'm sure I'm forgetting some names. Um, The stories will continue to come out this week as we grapple with the legacy of Justice Ginsburg.
2: Absolutely. And and I just want to point out that these stories are in front of the paywall, so I definitely encourage the general listening public to check them out. So thanks for uh, tuning in this week.
3: We'd also like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Please join us again soon as we begin ramping up for the next term with a special preview episode coming up. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon.
1: In asking the court to declare sex a suspect criterion amicus urges a position forcibly stated in 1837 by Sarah Grimke noted abolitionist and advocate of equal rights for men and women she spoke not elegantly but with unmistakable clarity she said I ask no favor for my sex all I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet
5: off our necks.